Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Archives and Futures, a podcast for future generations. I am your host, Ivan Lozano. I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. And this season is a partnership between Archives and Futures and the DePaul Art Museum. We're calling it the Latinx American Podcast in honor of their exhibition, Latinx American, on view from January 7th through August 15, 2021. The exhibition features 38 Latinx artists from Chicago and beyond, 10 of which we will be interviewing for this season of the pod. The DePaul Art Museum's Latinx American exhibition and its accompanying programs like this one are provided through the generous support of the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts. Learn more about the exhibition and upcoming events at artmuseum.depaul.edu. And please share, subscribe, and rate this podcast. We can reach a larger audience. And with that out of the way, let's get into episode four, our interview with Yvette Mayorga, which happened over Zoom on December 15, 2020. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Yvette Mayorga. I, uh, I go by she, her. I consider myself a Latinx artist, um, working primarily in installation, but very multimedia based, painting, sculpture, video, and everything in between. Nice. Yvette, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have a chat with you. Um, maybe we can start the conversation. Let's talk about, you know, sort of like the early days of Yvette. Um, you grew up in Moline. Is that right? Correct. Yes. What were some of your like earliest like aesthetic experiences that you remember? Like for me, it was like markets uh, or mercados, I guess I should say, because uh, it was in Mexico. Uh, but you know, like churches were also like a huge influence for me. What was it for you? Yeah, same. Um, definitely the church, the Catholic church. And then I would say the interior of my home in Moline. And then any like celebration, like any celebration that we were going to, like the aesthetics of of that I think looking back now were not only like influential in my like upbringing as a as a young woman um you know like sexuality my body but then also just the aesthetics of it and I think the church is is number one for me because I see it as the first art museum that I ever went to because I didn't go to one until I was 18 you know and so I was always so fascinated by all the you know white bodies naked bodies <laughs> And the imagery yeah. and so, wondering, you know, like, yeah, what, what were they? Uh, why were they here? What was the meaning of them? And why was I so, you know, like visually attracted to all of it? And also like, especially, you know, I, well, I can really only speak for like Mexican Catholic sort of church, but the, uh, the celebrations that you're also talking to, most of them also just have to do with Catholic rituals, right? Like the Primera Comunión or like the baptism or uh, weddings, posadas, all that stuff. It's all kind of part of the church in a way or another. Yeah, exactly. It's all connected. It's all uh, very like Rococo, Baroque in nature, very over the top, but also like subdued because of the you know religious part of it. But, you know, in Moline, there is two auditoriums or like two or three, I think now there's two, where everyone would have their wedding, quinceanera, bautismo. Usually they're like for weddings and quinceanera, the, the largest venues. And so it's so interesting because it was always like the same place that we were going to every single time for, you know, different people's celebrations. It's called the Call Ballroom. Shout out to the Call Ballroom. Yes. <laughs> it, it smells like 
cigarettes and like Mexican food and dust. It's like the best place ever. Yeah, and like kids passed out on the chairs at like four in the morning while the parents are still like drunk and dancing. Yeah, all that. Exactly. And then exactly. it's also like, especially I think probably in, in like in your case, such an interesting thing about what you said, it all kind of happened in two auditoriums. So that constant sort of uh, seeing the same place change completely based on the decorations and how that's sort of like an environment. I bet that was, a, I bet that, was, that, that kind of was uh, formative for you. Definitely. And especially, well, I guess I would say in both auditoriums, but in the cold ballroom, there are these like magnificent staircases that for every single quinceanera, it was like, you know, how you walk down. And I know this because I was literally in three quinceaneras, like for two consecutive summers, you know, wearing like different colors, dresses for whatever the palette was of the quinceanera. Um, and it was just so amazing to see like bodies walk down those staircases and just see how they would change every time. And it was so funny because there was nothing upstairs. Like it was just this balcony. <laughs> just for the drama of it. That's yeah, that's so Mexican. Just for the show. Yeah, I love that. Uh, did you have a quinceanera there? I didn't. I didn't. And I actually kind of regret it now. I think back then um, I had an option to either have a car or have a quinceanera. I mean, that's and a tough call. It is. And especially in Moline, you know, like I really needed a car to get around to get to high school, even though everything's pretty close. Public transportation is not really right. um, a thing. So, yeah, I chose a car. And then my brother at the time was like flipping cars. So it was just it was the right thing to do. But nice. I, al I also um, I don't know how this happened. I think it was just like another second option that I had where my mom was like, you can also redecorate your room. Um, so I did and it painted it like lime green. <laughs> and what, other things, what other colors were in your house? You mentioned your house as a sort of like a place of aesthetics. Like, I mean, my color, I, I think I've mentioned it before, but like my house was like, uh, like salmon pink and, and like mm. dusty gray. Mm. But there was color everywhere for sure. What were the colors in your house? You know, mine actually was really white. Like all the walls were white. But then uh, there was, you know, like paintings that reference like European scenery, Rococo scenery, mm -hmm. um, you know, paintings of religious imagery. And like that's where the color was or like all the little um party favors from all the you know different weddings and quinceaneras that decorated the cabinet like I feel like that's where all the color was but you know my room is actually the only room in the whole house that has so much color which makes sense nice I also love you know talking about the the, the decorations and going back to like the uh, the celebration something I really appreciated about that visual culture in Mexico is that everything is made with like uh, like wrapping paper and cardboard and like ribbon. And it's just such a, such, I don't wanna call them cheap because well, I mean, I, financially cheap, I guess they're not expensive, but there's so much care and so much uh, process applied to them that then they become these like sumptuous, gorgeous, overwhelming kind of uh, arrangements. Yeah, they're so elaborate. Um, so elaborate and, I, and it's just it's really interesting to think about like what decisions are made 
Like yeah. how, you know, like what, what do you choose to be your foundation? Like, is it a swan? Is it, you know, an arch? Um, it's just so interesting to think like how that process happens is really, it's really creative. You know, it's really, yeah. I think of them as art also. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I, I have like a, like a folder on my computer where I, um, I specifically am obsessed with like roadside altars in Latin mm -hmm. American countries. I think those are fucking beautiful, but also like, I love following like accounts uh, like on Instagram of like quinceanera parties from like the eighties and nineties and just like all that uh, um, drama of the quinceanera party. And it's so fun. So fun. Yeah. It also makes you think of, I don't know if you follow uh, Decor Hardcore. Yes, I love that one. That, oh my that God. Too. Favorite account. I mean, it makes sense. Just looking at the colors that I see in your studio, that sort of like teal or that like mint green on one side and the almost like Pepto-Bismol pink on the other one mm -hmm. or that like bubblegum pink. Yeah, great colors there. Yeah. So where is your family from? I think I saw somewhere that uh, they're kind of like from Jalisco and Zacatecas mostly. Yeah, we're mostly from Jalisco. So my parents come from a rancho in Jalisco that's called San Jose Los Marques. And it's in the valley of Jalisco. And I say Zacatecas because, so they grew up there, met each other there. And then like, I think maybe a little bit after they were married, they moved to Jerez and bought a house in Jerez, which is in Zacatecas. And it's about 30, 45 minutes from San Jose. So I grew up mostly going to Jerez and San Jose at the same time. And in order to get to San Jose, which is like so terrifying is you have to go through about um, 30 minutes of curvas. Oh, I hate that. I, I fucking hate it. I would take the bus to Texas all the time. And yeah, it's like, you can look out the side, like out the side of the window and it's like, you can see like all the dead cars at the bottom of the ravine. It's terrifying and there's like so many stories of yeah accidents. I've had a cousin who like you know his truck flipped but he survived. Oh my god. It's just crazy yeah. It's, it's so every I remember every time we would drive from Jerez to San Jose I would literally like take a blanket to cover myself because I was terrified. Yeah no the, the roads in Mexico are sometimes really scary and then there's like you know enormous vehicles trying to like you know get ahead of one another and and you know oh it's terrifying yeah. but, but I hey you made like, it you're here yeah <laughs> exactly and also i feel like it's secretly a personal goal of mine to be able to actually like drive through because i've never i've never done it um because i did it like once or twice when i was like in my early like 20s and like late teens um when i was already living in in, in texas and i hated doing it but i also just hate driving i have i, I you know when I turned 25, I was like, that's it. I don't want to drive anymore. And I haven't driven since. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what was like one of the things that to you was like the most um, surprising when you would go visit Mexico versus being in Moline? Uh, the most surprising, I guess, just how like at home I felt, you know, more than, I mean, I definitely felt at home in Moline because there's also a community of Latinx, um, you know, people from the same rancho from San Jose de los Marques for word of mouth reasons that immigrated to Chicago and then made it their way to Moline. And then people from um, Guanajuato and a couple of people from Michoacan, but it's mostly like Guanajuato, Jalisco. Um, so I think just, yeah, being surprised at how at home I felt, um, but also, yeah, how 
you know, I started, that's, that's kind of the place where I started to notice like the differences between me and um, my cousins that live there. And, you know, and of course, like the privileged um, life that you live in the U.S. compared to, you know, being in, in Mexico, but also just, you know, it's a different, and especially in the rancho, it's a different type of life. Like things are yeah. slowed down a lot more. Um, people are so connected to the land and, you know, like a lot of my family, um, you know, had, had, you know, cattle and, you know, make their own food. And um, so I think just, yeah, really impressed by all of that and sort of wishing that I had a connection to that too, um, because yeah. I didn't, besides from just visiting and, you know, hearing my parents' stories, but, and also like, so I think like as a young person, a young kid, so amazed at how enamored people were by the U.S., yeah. like through visuals, like clothing and, you know, my cousins like asking questions and all this kind of stuff that, um, yeah, because I feel like, I mean, I liked living here, but if it was up to me, I would have lived over there. Yeah, I was talking um, to somebody else. I was talking to, um, I think it was Alejandro uh, Jimenez Flores, and he was also sort of talking, because he's also from Jalisco, um, but from a town called Jamaya, like by Lake Chapala. Um, but he was talking about that, you know, when he emigrated over here and then would go back there, that sort of difference of like, people think also that you're just like barriendo dinero. And there's just like, when you move over, there's this fantasy of like what the US is that's, you know, not based in reality, but it's based on also this impression of like, you know, we come and we bring like the presents and sometimes we bring cars and, and there's that, that, uh, yeah, that back and forth, that, that, that communication, but that it is sort of distancing sometimes too. Yeah. Because I think it's, it's, it's very performative, you know, yeah. and I also think about the way in which we were performing, um, you know, I, as a young kid, I didn't necessarily have agency over how to perform, but my parents like, you know, putting clothes on layaway so that we would like go, you know, on the best clothing ever. And it's like playing this part of like, yeah, it was totally worth it. Like being in the US, it was worth yeah. it. So how did you end up, uh, or what was the sort of the path you took to start making art? Yeah, so uh, in my house growing up, my brother and sister, my, my oldest or older, not oldest brother and sister were always being creative. Um, he wanted to be like a video game designer and nice. then she wanted to be a fashion designer. Yeah. So they were always drawing and naturally like I started drawing too. So I feel like that was like my first in entry point to being like, oh, this is interesting. Like I'm kind of good at it too. And I want to be like them. Um, and then, you know, in school having kids like see me draw. And I remember like my friends would like ask me to make them drawings. And I was like, well, I'm kind of good at this too. Or, you know, like my way of like, flirting with my crushes and you know. <laughs> what would you draw for your crushes I would actually draw roses but I would draw roses individually like for myself and then they would see them and be like oh like you know these are so good like can you make me some and that was kind of my way and it was funny because I learned how to draw them from seeing my brother like he made like these like handmade um like notepads from from high school because you know he would also like be into wood cutting and he would like cut his girlfriend's name out of wood and then he had these notepads where he would like draw roses and like their name at the top and so that was my nice. entry point into writing like fake love letters or secret <laughs> love letters <laughs> and are you like the middle child or are you like the youngest one how big is I'm your the family? youngest you're the youngest I'm the youngest of five yeah 
So the oldest is like 49, then uh, Lupe, Javi is 30. No, Javi's 40 now. Hano Alejandro, he's 34. My sister Sandy is 32. And then me. Tennis is enough, he's two. Nice. Yeah. What was it like in school then? Because I see that you received the BFA from UIUC. Um, and there's been conversations that I've had also on this podcast about uh, the sort of the struggles to be taken seriously to end up at a university. Um, and also specifically about ending up in like an arts program. Um, how did you end up at UIUC? Yeah, I think it had a lot to do with my high school art program. So I had a teacher whose name was Mr. DeJoya and he was actually my brother's and my sister's art teacher. Nice. Um, and he came from uh, immigrants from Italy. And I don't know how he made his way into Moline, but anyway, he was such a great teacher. And there's so many stories of like students writing back for, for to him or keeping in touch with him. And he's actually the one that kept telling me like, you know, you should apply to art school. You should apply to the Art Institute. Or I remember um, he had people come to talk to us from Mayad, from SAC, from U of I. And that was like really new. Yeah. And unheard of because my um, siblings hadn't had those experiences. So I feel like he was really like trying to push the art program um, at Moline High School. And so, yeah, I, you know, that was like my first entry point, like, oh, maybe I can do this. And then a family member of, of ours told me about U of I and, you know, that I should consider applying. I remember she helped me write my, and edit my, um, my, my, what is it, interest letter at the time. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I got in and I honestly did not visit campus until the day that I moved. And it was crazy, but I feel like I had no idea of like, the etiquette or how you do these things or what and I remember actually when we were on our way driving from Moline it's about three hours um south of Moline um it was me my mom and my sister and we had a flat tire and I was like you know what it's not meant to be like maybe I'm actually not supposed to go oh. <laughs> it was great but you know I ended up going and you know everything was I mean it was fine but also complicated um served you know did four years there BFA and painting, but I definitely felt like I was behind other students who came from, you know, schools uh, that focused on art or, or who just had like overall a more, you know, broad like idea of art history that I definitely did not have. So I felt like I was constantly like trying to um, get to the maybe the level that they were at. Was that something that um, that made you work harder? Or was that something that you just sort of like took on as like, I just have to do this, but um, how did you react to that? The catching I up? I kind of always felt like I was like in this like, like liminal space where I was like trying to catch up, but I did, like kind of didn't know what was going on. And I was just like trying my best, you know, and not being like super hard on myself, but trying my best and really just like thankful that I was there and you know, trying to get as much out of it as I could, really. Yeah, it's kind of a gorgeous campus. I visited, uh, I was there, God, with COVID, uh, you know, everything, I, I forget, like, when time happens. But I think, like, a year and a half ago, I was, I was, uh, I gave a lecture, lecture there, and it was so nice. I really loved the, the, the art building. It was, like, actually kind of really cool. It's all those, it like, is. yeah. Yeah, um, all the windows. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
Uh, who did you work with? Was, was there anybody in um, when you were in undergrad or even let's also just mention also grad school because you went to SAIC for, for grad school. Who did you work with or who have you worked with in an academic setting that you felt like really kind of influenced how you thought about your practice? Yeah, at U of I, I would say Melissa Picorni, who, you know, is connected to Chicago and also shows pretty frequently here in Chicago. Um, she was really the person to, you know, make me begin to think about my practice sculpturally um, and to really push me in that way. Um, so she was really fundamental to my experience at U of I. And then I would say in SA, at SAAC, you know, I had Candida Alvarez as an advisor. I love and she, her. I love her too. I feel like she really grounded me, you know, not just like outside of my art practice, but just like what was happening in my life at that time in those two years was very um, intense, you know, and as intense as grad school is and like being in a relationship, like all these things I, I felt like I could talk to her about and she was super helpful. And just having her like think about my practice too through, you know, like a painter's uh, perspective. Um, but then, yeah, just super helpful. I would say her, William O'Brien, William J. O'Brien, ceramicist. Shout out to both of them, both incredible people. Both incredible people. And I was actually just telling William, I messaged him on Instagram because of all the um, texts that he's been posting. So good. So good. And I was telling him, this is literally how I felt having you as an advisor. Like I would, he would walk in and he would just like drop me a line. And, and yeah. then I would think about that, you know, like later on for a couple of days, like, wow, like what is, yeah, like so much information that I feel like is outside of academia that he was willing to engage me with. And I'm really appreciative for that. Yeah, I think that that's something that, you know, sometimes arts programs don't, um, enough time on that sort of like professional practice or like okay so now you know how to make art how do you live in the real world you know the sort of uh what is expected of you um yeah i think that all those things are things that like we kind of end up learning by uh, hitting our head against the wall sometimes um <laughs> but then yeah, again at the same time i'm also thinking about like when i was in grad school like i don't know that i would have heard you know uh, anybody that told me otherwise maybe they did and i missed it it's completely possible Grad school is yeah. crazy. It is. And it's true. I, I think like now I'm reminded of conversations that I had like what, four years ago and that, you know, maybe makes sense now, but it's true. I think back then I was just, you know, making and having fun. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, yeah. I've been out of it for almost 10 years and I still am like processing like visits that I had and stuff through grad school. I think that's just like a constant process now. Um, that's yeah, it's, it's a difficult process. Yeah. So when did, um, you know, one of the things that you're really kind of uh, known for in a way is, you know, the sort of the technique of using the, uh, the piping bags um, <clears throat> and that sort of uh, laying of the paint or eventually before the sort of the icing that takes a lot of sort of um, self-confidence to move and, and into those more um, ephemeral materials, maybe I could call them, or non-traditional materials. How did that come about? What was that process like for you? Yeah, it was me really wanting to reject painting. Um, you know, my last year of undergrad, I was so done oil painting and, um, you know, and I was really not interested in recreating master 
paintings. Yeah. And so, you know, through thinking about my work sculpturally and, and with, you know, the sort of subject matter that I wanted to talk about, I started using plaster. Um, but then, you know, plaster was not archival. And naturally, then I went to frosting, which frosting is also not archival. But through experimenting with those materials and like my rejection of painting, then I got to working with painting again, but through my, um, you know, like my newfound way of wanting to paint, which to me feels like really sculptural, non-traditional, experimental. Um, but I mean, it took, it took a while and it took a lot of experimenting for sure. And I was afraid, you know, that maybe it would fail. Um, and so I think, because it happened like over the span of maybe four years of, yeah. of that experimenting and uh, rejecting painting. And then I think I gained my confidence over time, you know, but I think if I was to go back and, re and remember what it was like to move into using like food and plaster from oil painting, I definitely felt uh, afraid and like I was not an artist maybe um, questioning like myself as, you know, being like the right kind of artist. Yeah. When did that confidence come to you? I would say like my last year of undergrad, my last year of undergrad, um, because actually I applied to grad school with my portfolio from my last year of undergrad. And it was just me really being done with it and just, you know, trying to take it like full force. So is that specifically yeah. why you also went into fibers and not painting? Because you were just like, I'm done with painting, get out of here. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly that. why. <laughs> and fibers is and such a great department. I've expressed, I'm on record as saying that like I have like the hugest, uh, I wish I would have gone into fibers instead of film video because all my best friends and all the best conversations I ever had was with people in fibers. Yeah, they're amazing. And, you know, they were so open to experimenting yeah. materially and, you know, like for us to go into all the different other um, departments and they were super open to like material having conversations about um, material and various mediums. So it felt like really, really exciting and exciting time and space to make new work. For sure. And that brings me back to something I wanted to mention others uh, also about, you know, your materials that you use and the techniques that you use. That for me, when, the, when I first sort of encountered that and when I saw those, I think the first time that I saw your work in person was um, in uh, Memoria Presente, that museum at the National Museum of Mexican Art, because we were sort of like yeah, relatively across. close to each other. Yeah. yeah. And I remember seeing it and immediately I was like, I know exactly what this is in a good way, because it reminded me of like retablos and churches. It reminded me of like the way that you decorate like Dia de los Muertos skulls, because that's also done with like piping techniques. So all these sort of like traditional Mexican techniques of like, yeah, celebratory practices that I think especially at that time, I was also sort of looking at similar things, uh, thinking about, yeah, the party and what, look, what it looks like after the party's over in my case. And I just was so drawn to the colors, the techniques, the way that you were creating forms and everything because it felt so much like, like home to me. So I really yeah. appreciated that. Yeah, and I, I felt the same way viewing your work too. Um, and it's just, it's so funny. We were literally right across from each other and in that, in that space there was so much work dealing with like materiality also yeah yes really so was also right next to us yep it was a really uh -huh. good show but it yeah was that really was it was that was Errol my Ortiz, who i also interviewed was also in that show yeah. um i feel like there's probably somebody else that i'm missing sorry if whoever i'm missing that i haven't <laughs> mentioned that i've interviewed but yeah it was such a good show it was a really good show, but that was my, I think my first installation 
outside of grad school that I completed. All right, maybe my first or second. And I think, you know, thinking about installation in that way where I was piping the walls, like the floor, um, I brought that language back into painting and that's really exciting to me. And, you know, I like, I don't think I was thinking about it as painting at the time, but it's yeah. definitely very painterly to, you know, to be thinking about walls, floor, um, the entire, you know, room as a space as one kind of like substrate. Yeah, and then also it it was really clear also in that installation and then seeing work of yours after that, how you were grabbing or sort of gaining confidence in your techniques and then sort of expanding it to different sort of like environments or ideas in really kind of interesting and masterful ways. Um, you know, and I've, I've had the pleasure of seeing like a bunch of your installations and I just, I enjoy them so much. Um, one of them I wanted to ask you about because I think that um, it sort of goes outside of like what we traditionally expect uh, artists to go into, but I thought this was super fun just because there was so many people that got to interact with your work, but was uh, the uh, 29 rooms installation that you did for Refinery29 and then traveled, right? Yeah, I traveled to various locations um, and Canada also. That must have been a trip because yeah. then, you know, the whole sort of point of that and to sort of catch people up, that was kind of like one of those like Instagram experience sort of locations where basically it's so people can like take pictures and put them online. But I love that idea of like your work then travels and is you're, you're exposed, is it, so many people get to see it and sort of be part of the environment. What was that process for you? What did you get really, from that? Yeah, it was really interesting because I, you know, digitally drew and create that created the entire installation. And then I worked with um, somebody in-house from uh, Refinery29 to, to make it come to life. And so I was, you know, although I wasn't physically there in the in the process of making it I was seeing how like my drawing was becoming 3d and it was super insightful you know like to have that kind of budget and to be able to create you know work out of vinyl um, you know custom cutting things out of wood and um, just yeah to be able to see like the ins and outs of how this uh, this event is created was really really awesome and you know they were super open to having me do really whatever, whatever I wanted. And so knowing that it was going to be a site for people to take photos and knowing that people are naturally um, drawn to my work because of the aesthetics in a sort of superficial level, I wanted to play with that and have the work have like hidden messages and, you know, text and content that while I was actually there um, a couple of days after the opening, seeing people take photos with the work at times they were actually not really really reading um or seeing what you know was sort of hidden in the work yeah. and that's like a moment of um like excitement for me and just like interest and just how um you know how that can be like an entry point into the work too not saying that you know i always want that to be the entry point into my work but i think it has a lot to say about the various audiences that view my work for sure, and that's another thing that's all that, that that's very kind of present in your work. There's so much layering of uh, of images, of references, of uh, objects. Sometimes, you know, in in like a painterly way, but sometimes like actually the objects sometimes in there. Um, how do you compose the pieces, and how do you make those decisions as to like, okay, I'm going to put like violin over here, or I'm going to put you know uh, uh, a reference to like a church over here. Um, how do those come about? What's your process like? 
it's very research have like heavily based where I'm, you know, into a certain subject for X amount of time. And then I think about like, and what media is the best way for me to, you know, create it. And then, you know, sometimes I think like, oh, is this maybe more than one piece or is this just one piece or is this an installation? And it always starts with research, drawing, um, you know, having my image references like present in the space, then drawing again onto the canvas and then um, piping. Um, so it's kind of really um, ordered in that way. It maybe it has to do with me being a Virgo, but <laughs> I always feel oh, like it has to be. Yeah. yeah. Although it seems like it's not um, orderly, my work, it's very orderly in the way in which I'm thinking about it and creating it from, you know, A to the finished um, piece. Yeah. And there's always like, yeah, I, I think that the, the, there's always a framing device, whether it be like a great that you can sort of like organize objects in or a reference to like a painting from art history or a, 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 a period in art history in Western art history, let's call it that specifically, that is, yeah, often hidden, but it's, there's always there. There's so much forth or thought that goes into your compositions. Yeah, and I would say like recently it's been um, ceramic objects, you know, but through viewing them digitally from a photo of the archived object, like that's really what what has been driving the work as of recent and then taking that and then remaking it through painting. Yeah. Now, how do you feel about the term rasquache being applied to your work? Because obviously I think it's like a way for, um, to sort of get like a quick understanding of it. But sometimes I worry when that term is used that it's used as a way to um, to make it seem not serious or also to to kind of like ghettoize the work right to separate it when I don't think that's the case at all most of the times when that term is applied yeah it's like I'm into the word because of you know what it means what artists have used and you know been defined by the term like Pepo Nosorio, Amalia Sabine's like I'm down with the word, but I but I also feel like we should have various words by now. You know, like sure. the the word's origin, like you know, dates back to like the '90s, and I think that there's uh, various ways that we can talk about our work, and our work is more complex than one word, one category, um, one way of thought. You know, um, so I think that we can definitely shift away from the word. And, you know, I've, I've had the word be applied to my work. And I think it's fine in terms of like grounding the work, uh, in terms of like looking at who I'm referencing, who I'm influenced by, like where this line of work uh, trajectory comes from. But I also agree with you that I think it can, it can serve as another kind of like boxing you in word yeah. um, that, you know, and I don't even know if it's often necessary, right? Like there's various artists who are using various media at the same time, experimenting in X, Y, and Z, and don't necessarily need to be uh, categorized by, you know, their race, their culture, et cetera, in order for you to understand the work. It's about materiality. And that's really like what this is about. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think it's also so much about like signs and symbols and appropriation in a different way than traditionally is, is sort of expected in, in, in an American context. Like, let's maybe put it in that way. Because one thing that I see in your work that is, uh, that I find so Mexican in a way, but it also kind of expands to other countries in Latin America, but is the way that you think of like appropriation. And when you use characters that you're appropriating or images or 
uh, whether it be like a brand logo or whatever it is, there is a, um, a dialectic that's set up uh, as a group that had to grow up with a set of visual references and, and with a, cult a visual culture that wasn't ours, you know? So it makes exactly. me think, for example, like if you go to Mexico, I'm sure you've seen this, you know, but it would be like Tacos Box Bunny or something like that. You know, it's sort of like the same thing. It's sort of like hijacking that symbol and then putting your own thing in it or using Definitely. it for your own purposes that I think is like locates you really interestingly and uh, and makes the art, you know, political even before you put things like, like fuck ice on it, you know? Right. And I would also add to, you know, what you're saying that it's also about class and i think yeah. you know you're you're touching on that without stating it but yeah it's about a specific kind of class that maybe is even forced to do these kinds of like to to work with these kinds of semiotics uh to create like a new language totally it's like a defense mechanism in a way like i you know and and like i've, I've one of the things that reminds me of is also how after the conquista in mexico like uh, the indigenous people would like hide their icons inside of like a statue of Jesus Christ or something, or how they would then apply their mythology onto like Catholic saints. And I feel like it's sort of like the same kind of saving your, 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 your references and sort of maintaining them even with what you have available, which is, you know, the sort of the, 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 the ruling classes decisions about what's going to be around you. Right. Yeah, and using them in a way that's like reminding you of what they are and maybe like your relationship to them, but then flipping them to remind you of what my relationship is or what I want them yes. to now mean. Yes. So how has that um, expressed itself, you know, when you show your work, especially sort of the political angle? Is that something that audiences kind of get quickly or does that um, kind of triage your audience? Yeah, I think I, I definitely think, uh, you know, like the, my Latinx audience engages with my work, I, you know, they find like a fami familiarity within the iconography, um, you know, my certain, you know, generation is reminded of like certain objects from our childhood. Um, and so I think that there's, uh, yeah, there's a familiarity in, in, in that way. And I also think like the material of it is, is open to all audiences, you know, like everybody has a, a experience with food with a certain kind of material that looks like, you know, frosting, um, that's pretty open, um, open-ended. And so I think that there's a couple entry points. And also now, you know, with incorporation of uh, Rococo references yeah. that are, you know, remade um, with my sort of aesthetic, that's also an entry point. Which is also interesting because that aesthetic of like Candyland and that sort of like colorful excess kind of does come from Rococo originally. So it's interesting that now it's this sort of full revolution of then, you know, going back to the Rococo objects and then applying this, this weird detour that the techniques took. Yeah, and it really, it, you know, it brings me back to our conversation in the beginning and talking about place and spaces and um, the interior, you know, and the aesthetics of celebrations. You know, in my research and, you know, looking back at archived imagery, like this is where I began to, begin to acknowledge the Rococo inside my home and our celebrations, like in the sort of everyday that, you know, naturally like lend me to want to reference it. And also because of the, you know, the time, like Rococo was a time where there was political unrest and also, you know, like 
intense leisure and joy. And, you know, I like to use that also as a reference to our current uh, political moment. Yeah, I, I, you know, I really, I really appreciate when art can have the politics so embedded into it, but then also lead with joy and with color and aesthetics and beauty. And I really appreciate that in, 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 in your work. Um, how do you know when you're done with the piece or what is, what does the word do once you've completed it and it leaves your studio? Uh, when do I know when it's done? I feel like that's really hard to, to, uh, state like with words. I think it's more of a feeling. Um, I think it's a feeling of, you know, sitting with the work for, for so long that you feel like it's come to a place where you can no longer add anything else because it's going to shift it into, you know, something that you weren't beginning with an idea that, you know, you didn't want to continue onto another path. It can be about, um, you know, in an installation about feeling like you are in an immersive space where, you know, the floors, the walls, the senses, et cetera, have been covered and you feel like you are experiencing your work in a way that you want your audience and your viewer to also experience it. So I think it can be, it depends, you know, if it's painting or an installation, but those are kind of the the ways that I would put into words. But I think it's more about like a feeling, um, you know, a feeling that you get in your stomach, you know, naturally for making work for over X amount of time that you feel like the work is resolved. Yeah. And maybe it's not, you know, because then you, you make more work and then you look back at other work and then you think, oh, maybe that actually wasn't resolved, but that's why you continue to make work. And that's a really diplomatic <laughs> term because like when I'm done with the work, I hate it for like a couple of weeks until I appreciate it again, when I'm able to sort of like distance myself from it. What is that like for you when it leaves the studio? Do they have like their own life? Do they sort of exist in the universe outside of you? Or do, are they still sort of like, you know, your kids um, that you still sort of like, feel very uh, connected to it's kind of like I forget about them like I feel like you know I have this like uh you know moment of like creating them of putting x amount of things and time into them and then having them leave and then I sort of like maybe force myself to forget about them and then I really focus on to the next thing but then, you know, I always look back to them for inspiration, for thinking about how to move forward, um, you know, what maybe could have made it better now, you know, like, I think it was, it was, it was great for the time that it was created, but I'm always like looking at them for inspiration and how to move forward. But I do feel like I sort of um, like, maybe like, yeah, disconnect myself from them in a way. And then when you're making work, you know, there's, we've mentioned there's all these different ways that you work, you know, sort of like smaller sort of standalone works and then installation or immersive spaces, do they exist in a different place in your sort of imagination or do they all sort of like occupy the same sort of place as, you know, this is just a work and how it ends up is, is a decision that I'll make later. Um, I always start with an idea of how they're, how they're going to live. And that, you know, begins with the sketch, like the sketch is, the installation and then I'm making, you know, X, Y, and Z for the installation. So I always am thinking about them in the space that they're gonna um, inhabit eventually when they're exhibited. Like maybe now you see them as, you know, paintings on a wall, but in my head, I'm imagining them, you know, in 
an immersive installation somewhere imagined. Like I don't even actually have, you know, an exhibition that I'm working towards with some of the work that's here, but in my mind, um, I do. Like I'm looking for the space to resolve the space that I'm imagining. Let's examine how you feel about audience. At what point does the audience come into like your thought process? Is it, is it during the sketch phase also? I'm definitely not thinking about the audience or I'm not thinking about a particular audience. Mm. And I feel like this is a question that I sort of hate to, to be asked, you know, um, when, you know, like thinking about grad school when I was having critiques and yeah. um, I feel like it was kind of a way to situate my work outside of contemporary art. Like who is your audience and who are you making the work for? Who is your intended audience? Um, maybe we're not the right audience. And I'd right. like to, you know, state that I think everyone, whoever, you know, happens to view the work is the audience. Of course, you know, I'm making the work from a perspective of, you know, like somebody who's female identifying, who's, you know, if we're going to do like the category of Latinx, um, who's making work, political work, you know, so those are, those are different categories that I think audience members can, uh, you know, fit and, and want to see the work through that perspective. But, you know, I think it's open, just like all contemporary art is. Yeah, I think I was thinking more of like, you know, once it's in the space, and especially, I guess, in an insulation space, do you imagine yourself sort of navigating and walking around the room? and the, the sort of the ways that you want to sort of structure that, um, that interaction? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, yeah, it's, the installation is formed so that the viewer will see, um, you know, certain objects first before they get to a video, you know, yeah. for example, yeah. And how do you come up with titles? How important are titles for, for your work? Titles are super important because it's my way of giving a little insight into um, my specific research for that piece or, you know, what references I'm looking um, for and to also situate the work from a history perspective and to like archive it, you know, like, for example, I think right away of um, portraits of the artist's daughter by Boucher, where or Boucher, I'm not pronouncing it correctly, where I'm like reframing that title um, as portraits of the artist's parents after Boucher. So I'm really interested in, in using titles in that sort of way where the work is being grounded by art history and, and making it important in, in that way. How do you consider, or what is the, because for example, I'm also thinking of, of this one piece that I'm looking at here on my screen, F is for Ice, it's 1975 to 2018, after portrait of Innocent uh, the 10th. Uh, by Diego Velasquez. Um, when you specifically call out like a previous, uh, like a work from art history um, or from the past, how do you imagine it uh, kind of operating in tandem with your work? Are you hoping to use that as a sort of like a framework for people to, to read the piece or is it more of kind of claiming the space and claiming the forms? How does that work inside of it? It's more about claiming the space and, and sort of reiterating that we were not part of this history, but now we are. Um, so I, I see it in that way. And, you know, for that piece specifically, I'm referencing after Pope Innocent X because it was such an important um, portrait of the Pope at the time. 
um, and then painting myself um, and my grandfather in that same kind of vein. I also love how um, thinking about claiming as a technique, but also as a, as a sort of like a personal practice, how powerful it is in your work when you do that because of you know the sort of the way that you paint the walls or you apply you know the sort of uh, the piping to the walls as a way to yeah I think that's a really important and then even talking back to um, to the home as a place that sort of began your kind of aesthetic journey how important it is to claim your sort of your personal space um, through color through forms through decoration um, do you have a lot of your work in your own home or does it all sort of stay in the studio it's mostly in the studio and it's by my my own personal choice because my partner always wants to put my work up in the in my home and I'm like very against it. So it's it's just here in the studio. Why are you against it? Is it just sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I would say the second place that houses most of my my, my work is my parents' uh, home or our home in Moline. And I'm against it because it feels like too much about me or something it feels kind of weird like I just I want this space to be like you know me and all about you know my work but I think I kind of like to have maybe a little bit of a separation too nice what is your process in the studio do you have like specific rituals or something whenever you get stuck or what keeps you going when you when you're sort of in a tough position yeah, you know, definitely reading. Reading is really helpful um, when I'm stuck on an idea or not, maybe not knowing how to move forward or lacking inspiration. Um, listening to music, listening to other artists uh, talk about their practice, and that's been like the really exciting part about um, the state of the state of everything right now is having access to so many conversations of artists that yeah. you know because they're across the country, I wouldn't be able to to listen. So I think that's always really influential is like sort of being reminded of like who I was looking at when I was thinking about my, you know, creating my practice and looking back at them for inspiration um, and music. I mean, Bad Bunny just released an album. Oh, Bad Bunny, <laughs> I love Bad Bunny. I like the third of the year and they're all so good. They're all so good. And so I, good. I, I think of it also as an art piece, like it's such a diary. Um, yeah. And he's also, you know, working with like references, art history, pop culture, like it's really, it's really good. Yeah, he's really great. Now, a couple of final questions because I want to be mindful of the time here. Um, what piece of advice did you wish you would have gotten when you were much younger? Or what piece of advice would you give yourself that would have made your life easier or your career, your art uh, development easier? I would say to not be afraid to make work about what you want to make work about, you know, don't be afraid of having other people um, try to categorize your work like your work is what you want your work to be about. Um, and to create it from a place of honesty and vulnerability. Um, yeah, I think that's what I would, I would like to, to tell other my, my younger self and others. Yeah, that's really good advice. Um, this is also, as you mentioned, just been kind of a wild year in so many ways, you know, with the pandemic and with um, racial violence sort of getting more of a spot, the more of the spotlight that it deserves. And I hope that doesn't fade. Um, how has this year affected your practice or how you think about art? Yeah, I think, you know, it's been really, really difficult. Um, 
it's been so difficult that I stopped making work for maybe about three months, you know, because yeah, that's real. It, it felt, you know, really hard to have joy and be creative while there's so much horrible things happening, you know, black bodies being killed, brown bodies being caged. Like it just, it kind of feels like this feels like such a privilege. And I think now more than ever, art really does feel that way. But at the same time, through the sort of questioning of like what it can do, you are reminded that it can do something. It can definitely change perspectives, rewrite history. Yeah. So, you know, I'm still interested in that. And I mean, you know, I've been making this work for a while now, and I definitely plan on continue, continuing it. I think that what it's also really taught me is uh, caring for my body, for my health, um, to not- Yeah, that's you know, such a good be, point. Yeah. yeah, to not be so hard on myself. Um, I think I often am. and you know, to, to try to have like, seriously, a sustainable practice, you know, that if I'm not okay, yeah. like, I'm not going to be okay to make work. So it's definitely been a wake up call in that way, too. Yeah, that's such an important machine, because as artists, you know, like our whole body is our tool. So, you know, other than just the paintbrushes or whatever, like, we have to make sure that like, we rest and we hydrate and all these other things, because otherwise, we're going to run ourselves to the ground. Yeah, um, and let's end it on a high note. What are you excited about for 2021? I'm excited for all of these systems of oppression to be dismantled. There you go. Yes, it's all going to happen <laughs> in 2021. There you go. You heard of here first, everyone. I'm excited for those conversations to be happening. I'm excited for us to, you know, be able to be, to meet with community and in a space, yeah. hopefully, in real in real lifetime, sometime soon. Um, and I'm excited to see, you know, what, what work continues on after this, you know, creatively, institutionally, politically. Um, I think that, you know, young um, BIPOC people are really like the leaders uh, in the yeah. forefront right now. And um, I want to live in the world that they're creating. Yeah, me too. Me too, for sure. Where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me on Instagram at, at Yvette Mayorga and my website at www.yvettemayorga.com. Awesome. Yvette, thank you so much for your time. This was such a great conversation. And that is our interview with Yvette Mayorga. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Before we leave, some thanks to Natalie Murillo, La Spacer, for our theme music. Go check her out at lastpacer.com. Archives and Futures, a podcast for future generations, was produced, recorded, researched, and edited by me, Ivan Lozano, in Chicago, Illinois. Check out my work at ivanlozano.net or Ivan Lozano Studio on Instagram. Thank you for listening, and until next time. <laughs>